Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. I am sitting on a fabulous big front porch of a farmhouse out near, um, hmm, I think it is New Unionville, just a little bit north and east of Bloomington. I'm on the Sobre Mesa farm. Sobre Mesa describes a Spanish tradition of relaxing at the table after dessert is served. That sounds good. I am here with a couple of fellows named, the first one, Juan Carlos Arango. Juan Carlos, welcome to Big Talk. Thank you. And Robert Fru. Hello, Robert. Hello, thank you. Now, Juan Carlos and Robert, in 2013, decided they wanted to change their lives. <laughs> they bought nine acres of land here and started an organic, sustainable farm. What a challenge that must have been. To be honest, we started this journey before 2013, and we really started when we were volunteering with the National Wildlife Federation in Bloomington. It was through Center for Sustainable Living, Lucille Bertuccio was one of the founders, and part of her mission was really sort of to help Bloomington, I think, focus more on the ecosystem that existed there and how to support that. Huh. And the National Wildlife Federation really had a great program at that time. It was called the Backyard Habitat Program. Soon after that program started, there was a, a TV show as well that was uh, hosted by Michael Majewski. They would travel around and visit all these different backyards in America, uh, businesses and, and other public spaces, which either wanted to become a backyard certified habitat or already was. And uh -huh. so they were showcasing what the features were present, what, was, what others could do. So when we met Lucille, we got involved quickly with the organization that she was also volunteering with, which was the National Wildlife Federation. We formed a group. We all got trained. After the course, we started helping others in Bloomington put in backyard habitats. It was really a great way for all of us to connect with each other and really to become more of a part of Bloomington huh. and understand um, the importance of the ecosystem around us and what we could do to help uh, native plants and wildlife thrive. So at that time, we were living not in Bloomington. We were in Brown County and we were living in Morgantown. We lived out in the woods, so we latched onto this idea of creating a garden that really used a lot of perennials uh, that were native and that were more attuned to living in a more shaded area. Uh -huh. So we didn't have much sunlight. We didn't have any sun like what we have here on the farm. And it is a brilliantly sunny day today. There's not a cloud in the sky. Aren't we lucky? We are, <laughs> yes. And so with that, then we volunteered for several years with this core group of people that we really became friends with. So... 
we decided in 2012, more or less, that we wanted to move away from living in the woods and we wanted to take on the task of growing food. And when we were still living out there in Brown County, so we already had the, we were already bitten by the bug <laughs> of trying to create a habitat with the use of chickens. And then we decided we needed more land. So Juan Carlos started doing some searching online and lo and behold, we found this piece of land. Mm -hmm. And that's how we ended up here. Nine acres here, you're on Mount Gilead Road. Did you know you were letting yourself in for a lot more work? Uh, not really, I would say. <laughs> we, we knew some, but, but this is really a lot. How'd you handle it? Um, I would say, with help, of course, pretty good. Uh, yeah? It's enjoyable and we have learned a lot. There is a soil process that you're into. You, you have to transform land into organic and sustainable growing area, and that's what you've done. What were some of those things that you did to change the soil? Yeah, it's been a long process. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we didn't know much about farming, so we started to attend conferences, workshops, reading books. So at the beginning, we, we kind of follow, like, what the big organic movement somehow which it had or it has good things but at the same time I, I think this is my opinion they were focusing mostly on the product per se to provide good quality food which of course that's important but after many years of reading and, and learning I think we, we change it to really cultivate the soil. The soil is the main, I say, uh, engine that provides good quality food. And from that, we move away from those practices and starting applying new practices. And, and the changes have been incredible. I mean, in a few years, mm -hmm. we have seen how plants responded and customers also mention about the the quality of the, f the food they get from, from us. It, do they say there's a difference in taste? They do, yeah. Huh. What kind of things do you grow here? Uh, a little of everything. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Well, I hear critters around here, so I know critters are walking around. Uh, yeah. Do you have eggs? We do. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have animals, but we, we don't uh, eat them. Uh -huh. They are just to be part of that cycle of the soil. The manure is quite important, so we use the manure to make our own compost. In the urine. Uh -huh. In the so urine. what comes out of them is of value. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You're still learning. Oh, yes. We are. You know, I think we're really riding this wave, which was this small-scale farm movement that started many years ago in the United States. And it really gave access to a lot of people like us to be able to entertain the idea of doing small-scale farming versus more larger-scale farming, which was a model that a lot of people still have in their mind about how farming works. You know, my grandparents, several of my aunts and uncles, they had farms, but they were never nine acres. They were 
you know, a minimum of 60 acres or, you know, a thousand acres. So they they needed big uh, tractors and machines. Yeah. That was the model that a lot of us uh, were left with until this small scale movement came along. And along with that came production of small scale equipment and innovation in that category, which really helped people like us to be able to approach a piece of land without having to do everything by hand. Yeah. And there are some tools that are smaller that uh, have been developed by Amish, by other innovative people who created this small-scale tool that allows you to do many things on the land that you normally would have had to have a big piece of equipment for. It has all the attachments, etc. So those pieces of equipment are vital when you first get started. Uh-huh. And we did depend upon that. Uh, but unfortunately, as, you, as we continue to learn, we realize, you know, really we are getting away from this model of just simply organic, but rather we're wanting to focus on this regenerative agriculture, as, as it's commonly known as now where you're trying to bring the soil back or beyond where it was when you found it. Because soil can be depleted by things growing in it. Right. Yes, yeah. And it, right. It, it, it becomes sort of maybe useless? Pretty much. It doesn't uh-huh. become as productive, certainly. Uh-huh. And yeah. so, you know, one of the things the, the National Organic Standards allow is that you can use certain applications of products even chemicals uh-huh. on the ground, on the food that are allowed by those standards that they set forth. We didn't agree with that from the very beginning. We decided only once would we try to get the USDA organic certification. We did that. Uh-huh. We did it for a year. We realized it wasn't a good fit for a farm that is so focused on permaculture, on a diversity of crops and mostly on perennials instead of so much on annual. So, and because of the variety that we had, it really created too much bookkeeping nightmare. Oh, yeah. So we said no more of that. And inspectors come. Yeah. And you have to fill out forms and say, I swear I did this and I didn't do that. Now, small-scale farmers are really have looked for other labels Uh than just that USDA label that they want to be a part of, that they believe in. It seems like it, 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 it fits the model for huge farms, huge grocery stores, mm-hmm. that type of thing. Yes. You're still at it though. We're still at it. Mm-hmm. We have hope that there's other options out there. You know, in Indiana is just sort of catching up with what a lot of other states have done, like oh. Wisconsin is far ahead of where Indiana is when it comes to how they, what are the supports, uh, what are the organizations out there with information to assist small-scale farmers, dairy farmers, etc. And Indiana does now have Indiana Grown. It's been in place for several years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a part of the arm of the, um, the see, Department of Agriculture. Is it in the state? Yeah. In the state on the state level. Yeah. They are going through a transition now, but I think that they are something that a lot of small-scale farmers have found 
help from in order to promote their product and make it viable for them to be able to do what what they want to do on a small scale basis. Our guests uh, this week, Juan Carlos Arango and Robert Frew, uh, they are the proprietors of Sobre Mesa Farm, which is an organic, sustainable farm just north and east of Bloomington. They're, we're on nine acres now. The birds are flying around. The roosters are crowing. The, do roosters crow all day? Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> do they wake you up in the morning? No. You get up before them? Uh, not that early, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, but they from the house, we don't hear them. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, there's a lot going on here at Sobre Mesa Farm. Uh, it's not just growing fruits and vegetables, but uh, they create community connections here. There are multicultural events and educational programs. There are farm-to-table gatherings. There's collaborations with land conservation organizations. Juan Carlos, there's even an on-site farm market every Sunday. Uh, we started pretty much the first week in April. Uh-huh. And it goes until sometimes December, uh-huh. depending on the weather. Right. Uh, but yeah, we open every Sunday from 11 to 4 p.m. 11 to 4 p.m. on Sundays, an on-site farm market. There's a lecture series. There are workshops. You guys are busy. Yes, we, we try to. <laughs> yeah. Have you found it rewarding, Juan Carlos? Oh, yes. Yeah. You yeah. don't have any regrets? Not at all. Is on, it? On the contrary. I mean, it's, things come on the right time, I think, in, in, in your life, in our lives. But, yeah, I, I wouldn't change this for anything else. So this is your business. This is your career. This is your life right now. Yes. What did you do before this to make a daily dollar, Juan Carlos? Okay, I know we don't have much time because I've done many things, but... Oh, is that so? Yes, but mainly music. Yeah, I that was my main thing. What I, did you play? I used to play modern oboe. And the oboe? Yes. Wow, and it's I, a reed. It's a read, yeah, yeah, double read. And I came here uh, to study Renaissance bassoon. Is yeah. that the truth? Yeah, it's a long story. We don't have much time. but <laughs> <laughs> So I, I finished here at the Jacobs School of Music. And uh, COVID was the big determined to say goodbye to music. Really? I only take really projects that I really like right now. But by projects, uh, are they live performances or recordings or? Live performances, yeah. yeah. like at what kind of places? We were invited, the group um, I am part of, to perform in Colombia. Wow. When COVID started. So that Which was, is where you originated. I am, yes. Colombia. Yes. And so that festival was postponed. And now there is... A possibility to to do it in November this year. Uh huh. So I might decide to go. I'm not sure yet if I will because I mean we are so busy here. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. Robert, what did you do before this? 
farm. <laughs> <laughs> he laughs. Well, I'm really still doing it. Uh-huh. Well, I worked as an interpreter. Really, I first started interpreting in Spanish. Uh-huh. When I was a teenager, still in school, during the summers, I lived in... Uh, I lived in Kokomo at that time, Yeah, and we were very close to Miami County, where there were a lot of migrant farm workers that came. So I would go out to the camps and meet with the families and enroll their children in school for the fall. And then I also worked in a clinic in town uh, that was for migrant farm workers, interpreting for the nurse. Uh Uh-huh. So I learned a lot since then about how interpreting is supposed to work. And um, so I later started learning sign language, took some classes, lots of workshops, had a lot of friends that were deaf, and then uh, became a sign language interpreter. And so those two together, Spanish and sign language, never worked well. In other words, there was never demand for both of them yeah. at the same time anyway until just a few years ago. And then that changed with as the needs in the United States changed with technology. So I did a little bit of that for a while. I worked for Sorensen Video Relay Service as a trilingual interpreter that was in Indianapolis. And then I once I moved to Brown County, then I... Uh, had trouble finding uh, interpreting jobs. I was yeah. a little too far from Indy. Wasn't much going on down around here. I didn't really know that many people. So I decided to start my own organization, interpreting organization, an agency. And from that, it really brought us to where we are here. I'm still running that agency. Uh-huh. And uh, I don't go out and interpret as much now. I just mainly try to help mentor other new interpreters and fill assignments from the farm office. Do you fellows speak Spanish or do you speak English as a rule between each other? English. English. Spanish only when we have Spanish speaker friends or anybody else that speaks Spanish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does he speak Spanish well? He does. Yeah. <laughs> does he really? Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, Each different country in Central America, South America, and Spain itself, all the languages are just a little bit different, aren't Mm -hmm. they? Yes. Yeah, expressions, vocabulary, accents. Yeah. Yeah. There's the two of you right here on this big nine-acre spread. I Mm -hmm. consider it big. Mm -hmm. It (laughs) is big for us. You might not. Yeah, no, it is big. (laughs) What kind of help do you have? Well, <laughs> well, I think the first thing I want to say is that, you know, we, our model when we first started Farm was we were going to run it as a business. It had just been something I was already comfortable with. I had this interpreting agency. Juan Carlos was very active with a, a music group, and he was a, one of the founders of it. So we had all of this sort of self-employed business background, if you will. And from that, we said, well, we'll just employ a lot of those same methods when we start the farm and we have to start employing people because we really figured out quite quickly with all the design that we had put in place with the help of 
another uh, couple, uh, Peter Bain and Keith Johnson from the from Renaissance Farm when they were here in Bloomington, that it was a large project. It was much more than what two people could possibly take on, but we did, and we wanted to go full force and put everything that we had into it. Mm-hmm. And so we decided quickly we had to start hiring people. Mm. And we had to start finding people who were interested in what we're doing, interested in agriculture. That was not easy. We had started going to all these conferences, and the Indiana Small Farm Conference put on by Purdue University, which is the big ag college here in Indiana. But really this sort of agriculture, that was not something that they... That something that they encourage their students. But they were more for, industrial farming. In teach them about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It yeah. was very different. So yeah. that was a big surprise for us. We really thought we would find lots of people very interested uh, from Purdue who would want to come here and train, do internships, things like that on this farm. But that simply was not the case. Hmm. So we had to rely upon local people here in Bloomington. We even had a we had a a full-scale apartment for a farm manager. We could never find a viable farm manager from all around the United States to want to come to Bloomington. Wow. (laughs) So it was really amazing that uh, all of the marketing that we did, we got really just two or three people that showed any interest, Mm -hmm. and their field really was not in even this sort of agriculture at all. Uh Uh-uh. So we gave up on that. Juan Carlos decided that he was going to become really the farm manager. Hmm. And I was the office person and coming out here helping with the animals and other things when I could. But I was going to have to run two businesses, the farm business and also the interpreting business. Yeah. And uh, be the head chef. So that's really the model that we started with. And as we move through all of that, we realized, you know, as the farm currently is structured, we don't make any money. We Uh have never made a profit. And that really wasn't going to be what we were about. So this whole idea of it being a business, a for-profit business, we had to sort of say, okay, we're going to find another way to do this. And so what we really see ourselves now as we're volunteers again, just like we were with the National Wildlife Federation. And so we're volunteers for Sober Mesa Farm. We are the two head volunteers, <laughs> and everything we do is for free. Uh-uh. So we don't get paid for what we're doing here, and the only people that get paid are the workers that come here. We call them associates, and they're the ones that's getting paid. We're out there tutoring and instructing and guiding and uh, sharing what we have learned with all of them. Yeah, I, I would say we don't get paid, but we eat well. <laughs> exactly, we eat well. And, and I think I, I should uh, iterate this. Uh, there are critters on this farm, but they don't go on your plate. No, no. We, we consider them workers too, so we don't eat our workers. They're your partners. Yes, <laughs> they are, yeah. Right. Now, you also have some other aspects to this spread here. Uh, there's an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. There's a farmhouse apartment. Was that the apartment that you had originally built for 
hopefully the farm manager. Yes. Yes. And occasionally you're able to rent that out. Yes. So we really have two Airbnbs. Ah. When the barn was brought here from close to Fort Wayne, it was disassembled up there on another farm that was selling off part of their buildings. And we really wanted a, a historic barn. We did not want to have what you see more commonly built now are these these frame buildings that have a clad on the outside yeah. with vinyl or with metal. We really wanted an original barn, wood, yes, yes. with you know beautiful timber inside and mortise and tenon structure. So that's what we found. Uh, the Amish crew brought it here, reassembled it, and the lean-to that was on the barn was just an open lean-to. So we had that encased and then created a space in there where someone could live. We did for a little over a year while this house was being built. Mm-hmm. You also have hip camp. Yes. What is hip camp? Hip camp is an organization that provides spaces for people who want to travel lightly with their own tent, their own vehicle of some sort that they can sleep in, and even RVs. And then you provide the space for them Mm -hmm. to park, to hook up into, and um, also to be able to enjoy being on a farm. Or other places like state parks, which are also in that network of hip camp locations. And then there's WOOF, Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. That's an international organization. It connects visitors with organic farmers. It promotes cultural and educational exchange. It pushes ecological farming and sustainability. And you have that here. So what does that entail? Uh, people come and say, I want to help on this farm? Yeah, pretty much. I would say they want to learn some. They want to experience different ways of farming. Uh-huh. So they travel. And it's a good way to do it because uh, you don't pay. You, you, you go to the place, you have a space to sleep in and the food is provided so you just put hours of volunteer or work whatever you you call it and in exchange so you have that opportunity and you learn too if you're open to that and we have had great woofers here and woofers yes that's what they call them Uh, we we had one from japan who spoke Spanish very well, <laughs> uh, one from Brazil, and all this from the States. My guests this week, uh, Juan Carlos Arango, who just finished speaking, and Robert Fru. They are the proprietors, or the chief volunteers, yes. as they call themselves, <laughs> of Sobre Mesa Farm. And again, Sobre Mesa, boy, I like this idea. The Spanish tradition of relaxing at the table after dessert is served. Juan Carlos and Robert, thank you so much for joining us on Big Talk this week. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes. Yes.